0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor for Crosscut. And today we're talking about America's reckoning on race. It's been just over a year since the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. And last year at this time, The streets of Seattle, like so many other cities across the nation, continued to serve as the stage for ongoing protests against racist policing. The anti-racist movement spread from there, hitting pretty much every institution in the country. Promises for change came from all corners. But where are we now? That is the question that we wanted to answer during our monthly Northwest Newsmakers event. We invited two men, two black men, who occupy different roles in the fight against racism in our society to provide some answers. Doug Baldwin is a former wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, and he is also an advocate for criminal justice and education reform. You'll hear him in the first half of this conversation. For the second half of the conversation, we'll bring in Sean Scott, who is a writer, filmmaker, and organizer. Talking to both of our guests today is Monica Guzman, the host of the Northwest Newsmakers series. And I've got Monica here to give us a little insight into this conversation. Hey, Monica.
0: Hey, Mark. How's it going?
1: I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, this is a big topic, of course. Uh, it's been uh, very much all-consuming in the last year. Why were we talking to these two guests? What did these two guys bring to this conversation?
0: So they brought insight into a dynamic that sits at the heart of every push for change. And on the one hand, it's the difference between performing change, paying it lip service, and actually making it happen. And then it's also about going out and demanding change, protesting, and then actually encoding it into policy. So Doug... Uh, our former wide receiver slash uh, pretty amazing and active you know, advocate for all kinds of things uh, around our community and nationwide, he, <laughs> he was there, right? When the NFL was going through its struggles, accommodating its players' passions for racial justice and other mm-hmm. kinds of movements. And he, he got to witness, in other words, that tension between performance and change are institutions just paying these things lip service, or are they and can they, and is it even their place to begin to advocate and and house those sentiments themselves and he is uh I, before this conversation, I heard a lot about Doug um famously Frank is how we described him in our description, mm. and I think that uh listeners you will you will see that doug is quite frank and quite passionate and, and, and really interesting to talk to. Now, Sean, as an organizer and an activist, you know, very proud of all that that means. And also a, a very considerate thinker. He goes deep, he goes very deep mm-hmm. on things yeah. and he works in policy. So with him, it was about that tension between protest and policy. Lots of folks in Seattle and around the country were out on the streets but how many of them understood what it takes to make the change they were calling for actually part of our nation. Right. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so there's a difference between calling and demanding and then doing. So that is why we had those two gentlemen on the show.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um, and we had a good audience for this and they were very active, had a lot of questions. What did the people who were watching this conversation want to know from, from these two?
0: It, it comes back to that, that same feeling that there's this urgency for change. Most of the audience questions were trying to turn that, that, that need, that call into something tactical. Yes, but what do I do? Yes, but how do we get there? Um, so it wasn't so much arguing the finer points of uh, these movements. There was something that really, you know, rumbled and roared uh, at the death of George Floyd, which was of course about much more than the killing of one man. It, it was Reckoning, I love that word, right? Because a reckoning means that we have to grab at things in tension and we have to figure out some really nuanced things. So it was a lot of trying to make these things tactical. So toward the end of the, of the show, you will hear Doug and Sean come together to answer these questions. And you will start to see how their different experiences overlap and intersect in trying to address uh, what the listeners wanna know but but not really fully being able to get there because because this is this is a big <laughs> this is a big topic and we're not going to get the answers from these two gentlemen we're going to get it somehow organically from all of us.
1: Hm. Okay, so what was your takeaway from this conversation, Monica?
0: Yes, I almost told you what the takeaway was in answer to your previous question because I was kind <laughs> of on my way, but I knew you were going to ask me. So, the the takeaway is that this is a process. There is always, again, this urgency for change. Can we just solve it? Can we just solve it now? Can everyone just get on board with this or that or the other? It's difficult to acknowledge, even though something feels so urgent, uh, that it still has many layers. And you'll hear from, from Doug and Sean all kinds of pieces of those layers they, they really go deep into it Doug you'll hear Doug come back and back and back to this image he has of ultimately how we're just human and we need to see each other's humanity even across big divides you know even to folks who seem to resist for all the wrong reasons are we sure are we sure about their reasons can we ask more questions so so that was it Sean is a historian and has done um, you know, long films about Seattle's history. And, and I left the conversation thinking, oh yeah, this is just one step in a long history. And it's gonna be very important and critical that we are present for, for this moment, but also all the moments that come next. And that we understand that it's not going to be re- resolved in a moment, not a year out from George Floyd's murder, and maybe not even five or 10 years out, but that we are taking steps and it's a process.
1: All right, well, thanks for sharing that perspective and that uh, behind the scenes look at the conversation, Monica. Really appreciate it.
0: All right, thanks, Mark.
1: We hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay. on with the show.
0: So let's start with how you've seen the events of the last year. Do you see the world differently since George Floyd's murder? And if so, how?
2: Um, Do I see the world differently? You know, I don't know if I see the world differently. I think I see the world as, you know, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna sound pessimistic, but as it's always been. Mm. I think we've always been in this perpetual state of trying to seek progress, trying to seek justice. And, you know, because of advancements of technology, we've, we've been front and center of a lot of the issues that we have been talking about, that our society and our culture has been talking about for many, many years. Um, and now we're just seeing it. We can't get away from it. We can't hide mm-hmm. from it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I guess I don't see the world differently. I see, um, I see because of the technology and because of the direction I feel like our culture is shifting, I think there's Mm -hmm. great opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. Opportunity for, how would you articulate what you're hopeful for?
2: Um, A culture shift really is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I I probably sound like a broken record to people who've heard me speak Mm -hmm. um, about this, but I've really been diving deep into culture and the leadership. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk about my previous career, too much, but there's some mm-hmm. relevant um, context that I pulled from that. Like, you know, I've been on championship winning teams before, you know, like from little league to high school, to college, to pros. Mm-hmm. And I know what it feels like, you know, I know what it feels like to be a- amongst a team of people who genuinely just care about each other. Mm-hmm. And I think if our, our culture can kind of adopt some of those character traits, you know, what, what kind of society would we live in? What kind of world would we live in when we see something like, you know, the murder of George Floyd and we all collectively know that that's not right. Mm-hmm. And we all collectively move in a direction to change the way that our society operates and engages with police mm-hmm. or any other infrastructure or system within our, our society. Um, mm-hmm. I think the opportunity there is that you know, we have an opportunity to change the culture and the way that we look at each other, right? Like, yeah. we're all human beings. And so if we can adopt that mindset, I don't know, maybe there's a great opportunity there to, to change things that haven't necessarily changed in the past 400 years.
0: Mm. So I want to talk a bit about your background. Your dad is a police officer and has been for a while uh, in Florida. So you've had a front row seat to that job your whole life what comes up in your conversations with him about police reform that don't tend to show up in discussions let's say on the political left or the right um anything he wishes more people would understand from that point of view
2: yeah i think number one is that there are so many different precincts and so many different municipalities and how they approach training is all different right there's no federally mandated training protocol right everybody does it differently Uh, my father To your point, he spent 35 years in the force um, in Pensacola, Florida. And, you know, 35 years, you can, especially in the South, you can imagine all the experiences that he went through, right, as a black police officer. And one of the things that we spoke specifically about, you know, several years ago when this topic first came up in the NFL um, was the, the, his belief in the proper training of de-escalation. They called Mm -hmm. it verbal judo. In his training. And basically, it was like, you know, the essence of trying to de escalate a situation. And so I took that information from him. And then I started looking around the country and, you know, quite honestly, specifically here in Seattle, mm-hmm. and it was very different than what I was hoping to see. Right. Um, and so that's what I took away from him was that, you know, there's just, there's a, a lack of consistency throughout the country in terms of how police are supposed to be engaging with the citizens mm-hmm. of their community.
0: And are you seeing some of that consistency come up in the last year or at least feel more possible? Or do you think that that's even the path?
2: Um, do I, let me clarify. Consistency
0: you. is part of the solution.
2: Um, no, I I again, I hate to sound like a break, broken record, but it's like, you know, the consistency, what, when you say consistency, there's so many different definitions of what consistency would look like, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what implementations of verbal judo or de-escalation tactics is consistent for various precincts, right? right. So I don't, I don't look at it in that sense. I look at it kind of the underlying foundation. Like, there's got to be a culture shift, right? Mm-hmm. We have to start looking at human beings differently. And I think if we start there, right, then the consistency or the um, the congruency and tactics across the spectrum might start to line up more. But mm-hmm. I think the underlying problem is that we have a a culture that looks at human beings differently for different different walks of life, different experiences, different mm-hmm. colors, right? Um, I think that, to me, that's the fundamental problem is that we don't have a foundation of looking at human beings on this planet that's tumbling through space. Everybody Mm -hmm. just survive and thrive on this rock. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the culture shift I think we need to have before we can see consistency in anything.
0: So turning to the NFL, it it looks very different today than it did when you retired, even in 2019, which was not that long ago. Uh, or when Colin Kaepernick got on the League's bad side by kneeling during the national anthem. Since then, the League has said Black Lives Matter. It's put tens of millions of dollars into its social justice initiative. It's allowed movement-based messages on the field. Um, how how does it feel to watch these changes happen now, um, and have they gone far enough? <laughs> I think, think I know the answer to the second question. <laughs>
2: um. You know, I, I would be lying if I said that it didn't feel that it, it honestly just feels surface level. Mm. You know, um, it just feels surface level. And we all know what that feels like, right? During this these past few years, there have been businesses and organizations who have put out, you know, messaging, but we as a community who, you know, have dealt with this for years and underst- understand the underlying emotions, like sometimes those messages come back hollow, right? Mm. Like it's not a depth of understanding of empathy. And, you know, I'm not saying that the NFL is doing that. I'm saying that it does feel like that at times. I do feel like they are trying, right? I I, mm-hmm. I know people within the 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 larger organization that are trying to really push some initiatives and being very thoughtful and intentional about you know, how they're showing up in these spaces and in these conversations. But I will say, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's a business. And the NFL knows that the majority of their viewers come from rural areas who don't necessarily want to see mm-hmm. politics and entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for them to, you know, to do the dance of and, and, and dance around.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I do think that there's some level of responsibility that the NFL is feeling, uh, but again, I don't know how high up that goes. Mm. And I'm just hoping that, you know, as we continue to evolve as humans on this planet, that that culture shift will happen and we'll see more of that uh, really substantive and, and depth of messaging come from organizations like the NFL.
0: Yeah. You mentioned it is a, it's a business at the end of the day. It's entertainment at the end of the day. Um, and the the limitations that put. So I wanna ask about that, that institutional side. The day they announced the guilty verdict in Derek Chauvin's trial, you tweeted one word, justice. So what role do you see institutions built for entertainment like the NFL realistically playing in the ongoing pursuit of justice, especially around race? And what role do you think they cannot play because of these limitations that you've just mentioned?
2: Well, I think they can, the role that I think they can play is just being honest. Mm. I think that's probably my biggest issue with the entertainment industry is that, you know, instead of um, being honest about some of these conversations, you know, again, like they're trying to dance around it, right? But like, shit, this (laughs) this matters to a great deal of people. This matters Mm -hmm. to people who have lost their lives, who have family members who have lost their lives, who... You know are dealing with this on a consistent daily basis and you know to some degree are fed up right like we can get into a, a large um conversation about this right like even the narrative about defund the police right like i don't necessarily agree with the term defund the police because i do believe like we still have sex trafficking we still have mm-hmm. people who are murdering people so we need police for that but I understand the concept and the, the, the thought process that goes through, like you can't mm-hmm. reform that culture, mm-hmm. right? I understand that emotional response.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so- Meaning you
0: can't reform that culture, so you have to try something deeper. Is that what you mean?
2: Correct, yeah. correct. Um, and when you, when you say try something deeper, I, I think what that really means is just reflecting internally. Like we're all human beings. You know, regardless of the color of my skin, I am a human being, right? Mm-hmm. We live on this planet that's in space, that's tumbling through space, right? Like I, again, I can get, I can go forever on that topic. The point yeah. is, is that in the entertainment industry, I think being able to reflect on that, to really be grounded in the truth and the honesty of who we are and what we are as a society, and as human beings, I think the messaging and just the initiatives and the the dollars where they go. All that stuff would start to change, but again, you know, it's it's the depth of the culture shift that we need.
0: There's um, there's a quote: the difference between a mob and a movement is the follow through. Mm-hmm. Um, and if my if my research is correct, you heard that from sociologist Dr. Harry Edwards correct. first, and then you said it when the Seahawks locked arms during the Star Spangled Banner in September of 2016. When you look around at institutions beyond sports, beyond maybe entertainment, where where is the follow through not happening? And 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 you've been talking about this deeper internal reflection that's needed, this deeper culture shift. So so feel free to, to tap into that and, and take us with you, you know, another level down.
2: Um, how much time we got?
0: <laughs>
2: uh. Okay, okay, let me let me put it this way. Um, I'll use a sports analogy, right? Like again, going back to the championship culture that I was a part of, that I've been a part of for many, many years, it's like there's there's no incentive for you to individually do well. Like you don't care about the individual statistics. Mm-hmm. You don't care about the bottom line, right? It's not about the bottom line. It's about the impact that you have on the people that are within your organization but also the customers, the clients, the patients, the whoever that you touch that's outside of your organization, right? And, you know, as as in the sports world, it's like in order for us to be successful, in order order for us to win, like we could not care about stats. You couldn't Mm -hmm. care about stats. You had to care Mm -hmm. about the guy next to you. You had to do your job, to the best of your ability, not because it was going to get you paid, or it was going to get you affirmation, or because it was going to get you fame or celebrity, it was because you cared about the person next to you. That's it, you know. And you know, I I know there's some Seahawks fans on here, and if you go back and you watch the film, like you can sense it, you feel it. You know, mm-hmm. one example is, um, they called it Beastquake 2.0. Marshawn's running down the side of the field, Corona. Yeah. and if you watch the tape, you see Ricardo Lockett come into the frame sprinting his heart out to go get another block for Marshawn. That's the effort that I'm talking about. That's the culture that I'm talking about. You know, Ricardo was not getting, he, he's not getting extra dollars to go make that block, right? He's doing that because he loves Marshawn. And that's the culture shift I'm talking about. So now to, you, to your question about what is not happening, I think that's not what's happening, right? Like these hollow messages, mm-hmm. they're really just pointed because like, you know, their bottom line is being affected. They're worried are people
0: about- looking at the stats? Like to, to, to connect the dots. You said you can't care about the stats, you have to care about the guy next to you. Right. So so pull that back out right into the larger fabric of what's happening. Right. Um, is that what makes things feel inauthentic or dishonest? Yeah,
2: it feels like people are worried about the bottom line rather than just being human, you know? And if you get it wrong, that's okay. That's human, you know, but just being Being willing to fumble through it and to be in the the mess and to be in the trenches of trying to figure this out with the rest of humanity, you know, that's where I think, I think that's where it's missing. You know, there's, there are, I do, I do applaud some organizations that I think are trying to do it, right? Um, But I also, I, I, you know, just quite candidly, I also see other organizations and businesses feeling really hollow about it.
0: Can you, can you name an organization, you were saying that you see some that seem to be getting that right. Can you, can you name one for us? Um, not to put you on the spot. It's it's all right if you didn't have one in mind, but
2: I know I, uh, l- let me think about that some more. I, yeah, that's cool. There's that's one at cool. the ti there was a commercial I saw not too long ago and I was like, oh, that's very thoughtful and considerate. Um, So let me, I I don't remember what company it was. I just remember the feeling that that commercial made me have. So let me come back to that.
0: Cool. All right. So uh, another quote for you, because you you are into leadership and culture, and this comes from that world, from author Ken Blanchard. There is a difference between interest and commitment. When you're interested in something, you do it only when it's convenient. When you're committed to something, you accept no excuses, only results. Um, When it comes to eliminating racism, wherever it exists in America, which institutions do you see making excuses and which do you see achieving results? And, and maybe we can focus on, well, we can focus on either one. <laughs>
2: um, that's, that's a fun. And feel one. free
0: to name like industries or spaces, but just, you know, places maybe where the attention could, should be.
2: Well, I, I th- honestly, I think um, the education system has to address this in some manner. Uh, I, you know, if you look out at what's happening in legislation across the country, like there's an attack on um, the institution of education and trying to address some of these concerns, right? Like there's an effort to expand the curriculum in teaching about the importance of, of our history, right? And where we come from. Um, you know, the Zen Education Project, right? Like I know it's a hot topic in a lot of places. but you know, as a as an African American male who grew up in this public education system, there wasn't an emphasis on curriculum that spoke to me, right? That mm-hmm. represented me, and so now I'm out in the world having to figure out, you know, my historical context um, in the midst of all this noise that really doesn't pertain to me, right? Um, and so I think to answer your question, there's a number of institutions that I think. Um, have some responsibility and some role to play in addressing the issues of of the day, or I shouldn't even say the day, of just of our history. Uh, But I think our education system needs to take uh, a broader approach, a more um, methodical approach on this topic. Now, that being said, I don't think teachers get paid enough as is. So there's a lot of problems already Mm -hmm. there. Uh, But that's where I would start.
0: So speaking of, of racism going going a level deeper the focus with police reform tends to be on black americans your mother is filipino mm-hmm. does your or, or is it your grandmother i think maybe well, both
2: yeah my yeah my grandmother's full filipino so that makes my mother half
0: got it yeah. does your background expand your sense of of who's most impacted by police accountability <sighs>
2: I mean, you know the answer to that question. I think, you know, look, there's a large population of law enforcement officers and representatives that are white, you know, just say what it is. And um, there's a culture that doesn't understand the other culture that necessarily they're policing, right? We we know this in mm-hmm. a number of, of facets, right? So. We know that there's people, there's officers who police communities that they, they're not from, that they don't know about, that they have no experience in engaging with the humans that are, make up that community, right? That's a problem. You know, if you don't know the people that you're serving, then how can you properly serve them, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yes, and you know, because I have the cultural background that I have, I, I, I would like to say that I see it from multiple Viewpoints, multiple perspectives,
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: do think that I think that there's in you know in some instances there's a case of uh, a, a lack of trust for institutions like law enforcement, right? There's a mm-hmm. um, there's a lack of trust, and then there's just the blatant hatred towards that institution because of the historical context, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been a part and seen multiple facets of it while also being in the south. You know, I grew up in in, in Pensacola, Florida, which is the more conservative area. And so you also I also saw it from that perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like at the end of the day, it's like it's all these humans trying to blend together for the same purpose of just thriving mm-hmm. on this planet. But yet we don't see it that way. And right. the vision is. Um, I'll stop there because I, I could go on for this for hours.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'll, 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 um, I'll end our segment with one more question for you. You've said that your faith is your foundation. Mm-hmm. How, how has that faith shaped your view of the struggle for racial justice in, in particular?
2: Um, the core sentiment is love your neighbor, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter um, who the person is that you're looking at. They're your neighbor and love them, right? Flaws and all. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just that perspective in in regards to to race, to class, to sex, to sexual orientation, to everything that our society discusses today, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: it doesn't matter. It's like, that's your neighbor. That's your fellow human on this planet. Love them. Love them Mm -hmm. for who they are. Flaws and all. Cultural differences and all. And I, again, I keep, you know, I, again, broken record, mm. culture shift. That's really what, it. I, I, in my personal opinion, that's really what it comes down to. Now, I know that there's nuance to that. And I know a lot of people probably think, like, it's way more complicated than that. I disagree. I think really it's, it, it takes us as human beings to reflect on who we are on this planet and to um, really force the culture to shift by acting in accordance to that belief, which is love your neighbor. Regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they look like, love them.
0: So I lied, I'm gonna ask you one more thing. Okay. What's one of the projects, cause you're working on a lot of things. What's a project you wanna you want to mention uh, real quick and we might come back and explore it more in Q&A um, that you're excited about?
2: Um, I don't know, I'm working on a lot of things. One of the things that I am working on right now is I'm building an investment company. Um, I'm taking a, a very slow methodical approach to it because number one, I'm, we're building a culture internally first so that when we go out and we, um, it is a for-profit entity, but we op- operate like a non-profit, uh, as a non We don't care about our bottom line. What we really care about is the social impact that we're making. Um, and so I'm really excited about it because of the culture we're building internally as an organization and mm-hmm. the thoughtfulness that we're going to carry out into Um, the spaces that we enter. So I'm really excited about that. More to come on that.
0: Awesome. All right, with that, Doug, we're gonna say goodbye just for now. Uh, We'll see you again at the Q&A. But for now, we're gonna turn to our second guest, Sean Scott. So Sean is a writer, a filmmaker, organizer, a member of the Seattle Democratic Socialists, and a policy and field campaign manager for the Statewide Poverty Action Network. He's also the author of Millennials and the Moments That Made Us, and his upcoming book from UW Press is Heartbreak City, Sports and the Progressive Movement in Urban America. So, Sean, hi. Welcome to the show.
3: How are you doing, Monica? It's, it's <laughs> good to be with you and good to be with Doug as well.
0: Yeah, I'm so, so glad you were able to make it today. So you've been an organizer and thought leader um, on the left, in particular, in Seattle for several years now. When George Floyd was murdered, what, if anything, shifted for you? in your sense of where you should put your focus and your energy in your work?
3: Well, I think I had the same reaction that a lot of folks who have been organizing for and advocating for uh, police accountability had. Uh, It was much the same interaction that I had had a couple of years prior when Charlena Lyles was killed uh, here Mm -hmm. in Seattle. Uh, indeed much the same reaction as a, as a native New Yorker that I had when I watched um, what unfolded with um, Amadou Diallo in New York City, mm-hmm. Abu in New York City, um, that it felt like every few years we kind of had this referendum of these highly, very, very visible uh, and egregious police killings of African-Americans in specific. And that that was sort of leading to many of the requisite calls for reform As a writer and as a thinker, what I sort of try to challenge folks, and I think what I was challenging myself to see in the last year is how is it possible that we can have recurring events that have such similar details Hmm. um, down to the official narrative that we get from local police departments as far as the killings of unarmed African-Americans, but we keep finding ourselves repeatedly in the same situation. And so I think there are a lot of folks and this this was something that I think I a realization that I came to that um, Gradually the conversation maybe needed to shift from Reform, maybe mm-hmm. indeed even on from accountability
2: mm-hmm.
3: To the notion of abolition and mm-hmm. That that is a, a progression that I think a lot of folks have have gone and through Can
0: a- you define abolition in this context for our viewers?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So We have had multiple abolitionist movements in this country for many years. We had an abolitionist movement in the 1860s to end the institution of slavery. Um, Michelle Alexander points out in her book, The New Jim Crow, that in many ways what we have with the criminal injustice system is an extension and a continuation of uh, those forms of racial subordination that existed previously in the Jim Crow South. So when we talk about abolition, we're talking about severing the link between contemporary policing, contemporary so-called criminal injustice, and the institution of slavery, the Mm -hmm. fact that you can be somebody who, um, you know, is imprisoned, and you are not subject to many of the constitutional rights to the franchise, Mm -hmm. that folks who are uh, not embroiled in the prison system have, suggests that there is a link between that old institution of slavery that we thought we turned our backs on, Mm -hmm. and um, mass the era of mass incarceration that we are currently living through
0: so on that note you you've said that when challenges are drastic solutions must be radical mm. what then are your sort of radical solutions that you that you kind of dream of and, and wish would happen uh, to the drastic challenge of racial justice and maybe it's connected to abolition maybe it goes beyond
3: right so to be to be radical is to grasp an issue at the root and I look at the fact that, In the local example, we're speaking to you from Seattle, Um, you know, in the local example, we have had a police budget that has increased on the order of 36% in the last five years, $407 million in 2020 were slated to go towards the Seattle Police Department. That is a number that is greater than the city of Seattle's investments in housing, Mm -hmm. childcare, parks, zoos, libraries and aquariums combined so that if we're talking about building healthy communities, communities where people are not subject to um, having to commit crimes of poverty, the solution that grasps at the root of that condition is one that says, why are we investing X amount of dollars um, in the, the traditional model of public safety um, when so much of community has gone under in Can we actually get better health outcomes, better economic outcomes, better social outcomes through a frank conversation about resources and how we are spending them Mm -hmm. within our cities? And that's just the city example. We could talk about state as well. But, you know, as a a Seattleite, somebody who's lived here for the last quarter century, um, that's where kind of a lot of my focus happens to be at this point is looking Mm -hmm. at budgetary decisions that we are making civically at the local level.
0: So you've said it that it helps to understand people's anxieties around an issue if you hope to drive change around it. So looking at folks who are resistant to the changes you push for, you know anything around abolition or anything beyond reform, um, you know whether it's economic policy, police, etc. What to you then are the genuine anxieties that you sense behind behind those? You know what are the concerns there?
3: Mm-hmm. So we. I think as, as Black men, and, and you know Doug spoke very eloquently that, to this earlier, I think coming from communities that are more likely to be subject to over-policing and to mil- militarized policing, these are deeply rooted anxieties that I know my parents trying to raise a young Black male in this country had, whether or not it was me or somebody who I know or one of our members of our family that were, were going to be the latest story, um, the latest hashtag, and I don't I think that it's it's very very hard to overstate and I think many people in this country don't quite understand what that does on a chemical level to walk around with that level of fear and I think it it kind of explains a lot of the reaction that we saw in the last year to the killing of George Floyd um that people were not necessarily reacting only each life is precious and each life lost in in such a fashion especially is a tragedy people were reacting as much to that individual tragedy as they were to the collective tragedy and indeed the collective trauma of having to operate and live, work, raise kids, go to, you know, go to school with that hanging over your head, that that could be
2: mm-hmm.
3: a possibility for you or somebody that you love.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think that's where the the anxiety of the conversation around the anxiety sort of starts for me. And that's, I think a lot of what I, you know, try to advocate and organize for is rooted in, Mm -hmm. addressing and ultimately alleviating.
0: What about the anxieties for folks who would sort of be opposed to your approach to what the solutions could be? So, you know, folks who say, no, I don't want anything to do with defund police or abolition or anything radical. It's just not okay. Not, not something that I can, you know, imagine. What kind of concerns or anxieties do you see backing that up in folks? Mm
3: -hmm. It's such an excellent question. And I, the reason why I appreciate it is because the notion of abolition has been treated with such scorn and cynicism over the last year mm. that folks who identify as abolitionists often do not get the opportunity to articulate and spell out what exactly this means, and also to address the the very real and reasonable fears that you call attention to. I would look at the fact that, um, you know, there was actually a, a cross-cut Elway poll that ran that showed mm. that the majority of Seattleites, for example, supported some example of shifting Uh, or civilianizing, I should say, the 911 response um, that we currently work with. That doesn't really seem like, on the surface of it, um, a tenant of abolition, right? But when you look at it, it actually kind of is because it's the idea that there are resources that are being apportioned that could go elsewhere, that there is a response, community responses that don't necessarily deserve or need a gun with a badge, folks who are having mental health episodes. Um, you know, folks who are, are are subject to houselessness, who don't have access to the amount of treatment that they would um, in a different social setting. So we, I, I maintain that there is actually much more agreement on uh, this issue with respect to some of us might be coming at it from um, a certain viewpoint as, as organizers and as avowed abolitionists. Others, you know, just want to make sure that they have healthy and invested in communities where um, a 911 call doesn't necessarily mean um, a story on the nightly news. Mm-hmm. And so I think the onus d- is on folks who are making this case uh, to make sure that we're bringing as many people into mm-hmm. uh, what I think ultimately is going to result in a healthier and more safe city and more safe society, ultimately.
0: Mm, it's sort of what Doug was saying, where at the end of the day, you know, we're all humans hurt- <laughs> hurling through the space and trying to thrive
3: in right. um, all
0: these different ideas. Absolutely. So you joined the Black Lives Matter movement as an activist in 2014, and then you saw Trump elected president two years later on your 32nd birthday. Um, Your work bridges the worlds of activism, which pushes for change, and then policy work, which tries to embed that change in society. Mm -hmm. Where is that transition from protest to policy toughest in your view?
3: Well, it was a lively uh, November 8th, 2016, to say the least, uh, watching uh, Trump get inaugurated and, and seeing, you know, what many thought was was the unthinkable. Um, and I, I think that there are thousands of, of folks like me who are in a similar situation where, um, you know, they felt that business as usual couldn't kind of continue on the way that it had and that we were entering into a very desperate era in American history where collective action was going to be required. Um. I'm somebody who in a lot of ways felt, um, I don't know what the word for it would be, but I felt a way, let's say, watching the uh, the storm, the, the, the storming of the Capitol and the Stop the Steal sedition. And to know that, you know, there were at least six Seattle police officers that attended this sedition, spoke to the larger breakdown in trust that I think we've been talking around between communities and police. And so there do have to be policy solutions to address this condition. Um, It always is going to come back to me to the way that we're allocating our resources, the priorities that we have for uh, affordable childcare in the city, the priorities that we need to have for affordable housing, um, the priorities that we profess have to be backed up by actual investment. Um, Doug talked a little bit earlier about what it looks like to have a shallow commitment to racial justice and to economic justice. Um, from you know the NFL, which I'm sure a lot of you know former players can talk to you about how that's going with mm. uh, how they're treating the players union, um, but in the in the very localized example of talking about how the city is interacting with some of its most vulnerable citizens and most vulnerable workers, I think it needs to be a budgetary commitment to to back up the rhetorical commitment that we have had for many years.
0: Mm. So um, I wanna pause real quick and remind our viewers that we're, we'll be doing the Q&A in just a couple of minutes. So uh, if you haven't submitted your question, I'm sure you have many, you better have many. <laughs> this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, please get them in um, so we can consider them for, uh, for the latter part of our show. So Sean, um, to close us out, looking at your work um, is, is sort of going from sort of one deep dive to another. You know, you do a lot of long form, you've done um, book-length studies on uh, on millennials. You did this documentary on Seattle's history, and you you keep kind of bringing it up in your work, you know, going back to look forward, which is really fun. So imagine then that it's 10 years from now. Uh, what question about this moment today would you be working on a deep dive around?
3: Well, you know, I, I hope that I hope that you know the next time that I have the opportunity in ten years to to join um, a similar conversation um, with Crosscut that we're talking about the tremendous strides that we took civically to address racial justice, and you know that we're not talking from the vantage point of the opportunities that we did not make the most of. Um, it's one of the reasons why I find history so fascinating because it gives you it takes a lot of pressure off of you honestly to know that. There are certain recurring struggles that have happened over and over again. The responses, emotional responses that you might have, policy responses, political responses, those have been played out in various different contexts. So we have the opportunity to learn what worked and what did not. Moving forward in 10 years, I hope the conversation that we're having is one that talks about, man, can you believe that we had gotten it wrong for so many years and that actually all it took was two or three years of sustained or four or five or maybe eight or nine or 10 years of sustained commitment to undo a lot of those structures. That's the conversation that I I want us to be having in, um, I guess that would be in 20, in 2031. Mm
0: -hmm. And we'll be looking forward to reading your book about that. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't
3: take 10 years to write.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back with more after this message.
0: Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options, to HEPA filters on board, and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So um, before we get to our Q and I wanna make it a party and bring Doug back on screen. So we're gonna get all three of us here. There we are. Um, so again, thank you both so much. Uh, I think this conversation's just generated a lot of really interesting themes and topics and, and you know both from the head and the heart. So really appreciate that. Um, so first I'm gonna ask a question to both of you f- uh, that was submitted ahead of time from John Hayes. He asked, what is the hardest part about being a race and justice leader and spokesperson.
2: Well, Doug, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Sean. You can take that one first because I I need time. <laughs> I would say,
3: you know, the, the in in my limited experience, one of the most difficult things is, um, you know, the 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 hard part is that. You're arriving at certain conclusions as a result of being very, very close to folks who are most impacted by those social issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It might take many years before that reaches a critical mass and folks that are a little bit further from, for example, we've been talking about uh, police violence in particular, the question of poverty, no less mm-hmm. uh, important and intersex, the question of, you know, Doug brought up education. There are many people who are closer to the folks who are most impacted by these issues. It can take many years before it reaches critical mass towards folks who are a little bit further from that to buy in. And in that interim period, you have to realize that the struggling and the organizing that you're doing is about bringing people in. It's bringing people in. It's bringing people in until that critical mass has been built, which does not emerge overnight. It happens as a result of a lot of work that does not happen in front of the camera. So I would have to say, sustaining through that part where it feels like you might be laboring um, in obscurity or laboring and and speaking to folks on deaf on excuse me on ears where folks are not listening to you necessarily,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, but knowing that you know with that work that that happens in the background that it's going to it's going to reach sunlight at a certain
2: point. Yeah, I would I would 100% agree with that and. You know i I think from my experience the hardest thing is being in conversation with those who do not see it who Mm -hmm. don't recognize it and who just who don't understand it you know i I have friends and and even family that don't see Mm -hmm. it from that perspective right and it's really hard to be in conversation with them because to john's question you know as a um quote unquote leader Right. There's a certain expectation that I even have upon, upon myself. I want to be a representation of the foundation that I believe in. Right. To love your neighbor. So even these people who don't necessarily agree or even can see it from this perspective, I have to be the example for them to see that there's, it, there is a different perspective. There is a different way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in conversation with those people who, you know, just <laughs> just don't want to see it from that angle. It's a really challenging place to be. But I think as leaders, we are called to go into those spaces, uh, just like Sean said, and build that critical mass. And the only way we do that is by being in relationship, engaging with those who don't necessarily see it from, from that angle. And you, you said a quote earlier about interest and commitment. I think the commitment begins with interest. Right. So to me, it's just I need that effort. I need that effort. If if I'm going to expect that effort from somebody else who doesn't understand the perspective that I have, I also have to provide that effort into being engaged in the conversation with them. And I believe that's the only way we build that critical mass that Sean was talking about.
0: So here's a question from Dan Saltman. After resources are reallocated to community priorities uh, and abolition otherwise, what is the optimal response to violence in the community? So Sean, you can kick us off, but I'd love to hear from Doug as well.
3: Yeah, well, we have a number of law enforcement agencies that stem not just from local police departments but also upwards to the county through the state, federal law enforcement as well. You know, the the question of response to what we are going to necessarily do about violent crimes, which is a very important issue. um, At present, you know, actually 60% of um, violent crimes don't actually end up ending in any kind of conviction or trial. So there's quite a bit of leeway um, or give between the amount of funding levels that we have traditionally advocated to the present model of public safety and the outcomes that we have gotten in return um and so i would i would you know i would i would point to the fact that many folks are are calling on public safety models sort of after the fact of a crime um, mm-hmm. and that we can you know we can work and collaborate at uh, different and higher levels of government um to address you know many of the the safety concerns that might exist in the community i will say this i think currently we have a lot of law enforcement that are you know handling issues that have to do with you know, parking enforcement, that have to do with petty crimes and misdemeanors, crimes of poverty. Um, and that maybe with you know, many of those kinds of responses that should not be criminal off their plates, maybe there would be a lot more that um, law enforcement, a different model of law enforcement um, would actually be able to focus on if these are the actual, the real deep-seated anxieties that folks have around what we could do in a world without policing. It has to do with prioritizing um, for many folks who believe that we need a public safety model prioritizing that 911 uh, response.
0: Doug, anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, I think progress is always going to be a process. So even if we re- reallocate funds uh, to community needs, those community needs will change. You know, our mm-hmm. communities always change, we're always evolving. And so you know, being receptive and open to those changes as they come and, and having that conversation, I think that's one way. And then the other way in terms of mitigating violent crimes, like, you know, we're going to have violent crimes, okay? That's just, that's just we're human beings. It's, it's mm-hmm. always going to be a part of our culture, unfortunately. But what we can do to help mitigate that is do something on the preventative side of things. So I spoke earlier about teachers having a lack of funding why don't we start focusing more on that level and the education, the public education realm where these kids are entering into this, these spaces mm-hmm. and they need more services. They need more attention. They need more time. They mean, need more love. Right. And again, I know that word can actually feel to some people, but that's genuine, genuinely what I believe in. You know, if we really want to solve some of these problems, we have to be looking at it v- vastly differently, just like Sean said, more radical responses to this. And I know the word radical could be weaponized, but when I say radical, I mean, let's actually look at human beings and start loving them for human beings. And maybe we start having some solutions to these problems long term.
0: So a question for Sean. Is there any commitment to create a bridge between progressives and moderates to become a greater coalition of the willing? I think you addressed this a bit earlier, and that comes from Connie Summers.
3: Yeah, it's it's such a good question. And I think you know, you know, Connie, what I would say is that um, we have so much political will and so much visibility around uh, what it means to be a progressive in the city. And the aims of being somebody who's a progressive are aims that very few people would disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, where it comes down to the, um, Connie mentioned moderates in that solution as well. I think that that's the work of of, of relationship building. That's the work of making an inclusive case. That's the work of saying, you know, you can call yourself a moderate, but the, the concerns where you have around, um, you know, wanting, wanting an affordable place to live, wanting to have um, childcare that's very accessible, wanting to have healthcare that's readily available, those are concerns that I think most people would actually end up sharing. So really, the case that the onus is going to be on folks that maybe are, are are bringing up a little bit more of the, the vanguard, if you will, and who are pushing on these issues to make sure that we're building a case that's an inclusive case. And I think more people than than moderates, I might add, would actually uh, buy into a vision that's expressed in an inclusive fashion.
0: So that's actually a perfect segue to our next question, which I'll throw to Doug and then Sean, if you want to add to it. Um, This, this comes from Kelly Lloyd. How do we convince the right to embrace racial and social justice? Um, You know, and there's, yeah, so I'll just let you guys go for it.
2: I mean, isn't that the age old question for years and years Mm -hmm. and years? I think, Again, this is I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's just engaging with the other side, engaging with the opposition that doesn't see it from your perspective, being in relationship with them, being in conversation Mm -hmm. with them, showing them your humanity, you know, like that's really what they, they the people who don't see it from that perspective, they already have a preconceived built up mindset of the way that they see things. And the only way that you change that is by engaging with them and showing them that it's not that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of strength. Um, And I hope that we are resilient enough as a community to continue to push through that. Because, again, in my opinion, that's the only way we're going to build up that critical mass. Mm -hmm.
0: Sean, go ahead.
2: Yeah. You know, I look at this from the vantage point of
3: one specific issue that I think there there would actually be a lot of common ground on, and it, and it is the issue of a civil asset forfeiture laws where presently in Washington state, whether you are convicted of a crime or not, if you are merely a suspect, local police departments actually have the ability to seize assets that they think are tangentially related to a crime that you may or may not have committed. Not only cash, but also bank accounts, real estate, consumer electronics. If you're somebody who's coming at this from a right perspective, or if you're a libertarian, property rights are uh, are sanctity in the United States. And so the idea that a government agency of any kind, if you have not been committed of a crime, could be able to see certain amounts of property, 90% of those uh, assets, that revenue can actually go back to local police departments. So it creates an incentive um, to actually, um, to, to you know, to to prop up in a sense certain amounts of criminal activity, as we've defined it, because there's profit in it for local police departments. I don't think that's an arrangement that would work for anybody on the left, and certainly not for somebody who's on the right. Definitely not in the center. So that's a case that needs to be made among these and other issues to show if you're somebody who values property rights, if you're somebody who values the rights of the individual, if you're somebody who values um, free speech and the right to assembly um that there's a certain amount of police conduct that you 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 would be forced by the compulsion of those convictions to be critical of and i think that's the way that we would have to go about making that case
0: so i know you both value nuance so i want to ask a follow-up question to that question uh which is what what do you think can be learned from the right you know there's this there's this powerful assumption that the right is is against much of racial and social justice but there, it may be more complicated than that. What do you think can be learned from perspectives on the right in this movement?
2: I think, you know, there's um, a, a, a clear indication of fear from some component um, mm-hmm. of, of the rights historical context that makes them feel compelled to be against um, social change in that way, right? Uh, and I think it's also you know, it's, it's relevant to us now because those of us who are on this side of the spectrum, like there's a, a, a rational fear of interacting with law enforcement. You know, Mm -hmm. like I I feel it even in my neighborhood, a police car walks by and I'm like, you know, I I have to put on this, I feel innately in my being that I have to put on this smile. Like I'm not doing anything Mm -hmm. wrong, you know, and that, and like, I don't want my daughters to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, 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 I recognize that there is a fear there. And so being able to take a step back and say, okay, this fear is getting me to react a certain way. What is the fear on the other side that is getting them to react that certain way? Mm -hmm. And if I empathize with them on a human level and then speak to that and engage in that and have a conversation with that, then maybe there's a, a bridge that can be built that understands that the fears are very similar Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we all want to go home safely to our families and to our loved ones and be seen out in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, talking about nuance, I think that's really kind of the essence of what I'm trying to speak towards, but also mm-hmm. what I see in our communities is much needed. Right. Go ahead, Do you have I, I really think you also look at, um,
3: and there's so much so much value in what Doug just said. I mean, I think also about the fact that The right in this country has sort of understood very well what organizing means and what, you know, running candidates who share your viewpoint at, you know, the level of school board, council, governor, dog catcher, state legislature, and the act of building power to advance a vision for society is something that I think, frankly, the right has understood for much longer than many folks on the other side of the divide. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I look at I look at that as a as a um you know to the to the spirit of your question is something that i think a lot of folks could stand to emulate that if we were similarly committed um and similarly civically engaged uh we would see very very different outcomes um that even those on the right would would come to enjoy um and and perhaps agree with um you know the world that would be built from you know the the engagement of more progressives and folks on the left and in our elections and in our political system.
0: So we're going to close out with one more question, um, and this I think ties together a few things we've been talking about. So, why does it seem as though everyone wants equity, but they don't seem to want to talk about culture? Curious how you might interpret that, uh, Doug. You've been talking about culture a lot. Do you want to kick, kick us off?
2: I think honestly, it's that we don't we don't know how to define culture, right? It, it's just how do you define culture? Right? From different perspectives, different walks of life, how do you define culture? Equity, you can't have culture without equity. Like everybody has to have a part in a role in the culture. and you know, again, i'm gonna I'm gonna take it from a a sports perspective. Um, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan, right? Uh, I know this is going to make some people mad, but I like LeBron James. I really, really like LeBron James. And the reason why I like him is because he builds a culture on the teams that he plays with. You know, the man's been to 10 finals for a reason. And if you just watch the, the, the games and his teams, he's building a culture. And what that culture really is is that everybody knows their role. Everybody knows their role. You know, if LeBron is is driving to the Mm -hmm. hole and he kicks it out to the corner to KCP, LeBron can look the other way because he trusts KCP to knock down that open three, Mm -hmm. right? But that's the same, I think that's the same conversation that we're trying to have about equity and culture. Like, that's the culture we're trying to build where I pass the ball to you and I trust that you're going to do the right thing with it because not Mm -hmm. because it's your job or because you're going to make money because of it. It's because you genuinely care about me and the rest of the team. You genuinely care about your neighbor. And so when I pass you the ball, your equity is that that's your role. Your role is to be in that corner and knock down the three. And we're all counting on you to do that. And so you know, I think the problem is is that we don't understand how to define culture to that level. And if Mm -hmm. we do, if we can get to that point, then we would all understand our equity, our role in that culture.
0: Sean, bring us home.
3: Well, Doug has just passed me the ball here. I promise I'm (laughs) gonna gonna try to not break this. So many
0: sports uh, analogies.
3: You're right. Um, You know, in bringing up LeBron, he's also one of the first athletes to don an I can't breathe shirt. Uh, He was somebody who spoke out, had all the Miami Heat, I think it was a team that he was on at that time, um, wearing black hoodies in solidarity with uh, the Martin family after Trayvon Martin was killed. Um, And I think a lot of folks, to something that, you know, Doug had mentioned earlier, would really like to see a world where sports and culture are escapism from certain political concerns, but with a new generation of of black athletes, a new generation of athletes generally—not to leave out our our black and brown and white um, allies and comrades in this movement—have sort of realized that there's no there's no turning away from it. And if you're going to turn on a game and enjoy what. The brilliance of black and brown athletes looks like on the field, you're also going to have to get a taste of the experiences that they are bringing with them to the game. And that's enough to make some people want to turn off. But it's also make to it's also enough to make a lot of people tune in and get a certain amount of deeper um, empathy and deeper cultural experience than they would have gotten um, if it was just business as usual and just playing games. So that's a point that I really appreciate and, and appreciate being on this, in this conversation so much with Monica and, and with you as well, Doug. Thank
0: you,
3: Sean.
0: thank you both so much. Uh, that was a very rich conversation. I wish it could go on longer. Um, but thank you both so much for being here. Appreciate it.
2: For having us.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Doug, Sean, and of course to Monica for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Catherine Burby managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to Crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.